0: Uh, We are in a semester-long series in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We're gonna be in Luke 6 today. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Luke 6? That's where we're gonna be landing today. Uh, And the series is called, Did Jesus Really Say That? A journey through the Gospel of Luke. We're taking it chapter by chapter. There's not space and time here to unpack everything in every chapter. We're looking for a statement or two or three really at the most to unpack uh, each week. And so again, Luke 6 today. Uh, Did you know that that little exclamation point, question mark, did you know this? There's actually a word that describes it that was invented in 1962. We had one person in the first first service that knew it. Does anybody know what the phrase is? Who said it? I heard it. And bang who said, you read it on the screen? Where? Oh, you cheated. You cheated. Yes, there's this thing that, like, I can see the TV, and it's here, and the yellow under it's the next slide. Very well played. Touche. Touche. Well it is called an interrobang and i did not know this but thanks to my friend dottie she pointed it out invented in 1962 it gets its name from the punctuation that it's intended to combine does any interro does anybody remember being in elementary school and learning the technical term for the question mark it is called an Interrogation point, right? I was like, oh my gosh, I forgot that. Ms. Grandstaff would be so upset with me. (coughs) The interrogation point is for intero, the technical term, and bang is for the exclamation mark. So intero bang, there we go. Now you're all smarter today, so you're welcome. Two big points about the intero bang. Rhetorical questions with emphasis that we're looking, we're using this like punctuation mark to uh, really express strong emotion. Did Jesus really say that? Exclamation point, question mark, in Tarot Here's some examples, some fun, serious ones. Uh, here's, here's one, a sneeze travels how many miles an hour? In Tarot there's actually, a, uh, there's actually an answer for this. Anybody know how fast a sneeze travels? Very close. 100 miles an hour. 100 miles an hour. You'll think about that the next time you sneeze and you do that, you'll think, that was a 100-mile-an-hour sneeze. You'll think about that. <laughs> this one's a bit more serious for the husbands. Husbands, you ready? How could you forget our anniversary? bang. August 22nd, lock yours in. That's mine, it's not yours. Lock yours in. Dad's in the room. Example of an bang. Dad ate the last slice of pizza and called it a dad tax? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. I was that. In and Out yesterday, Lindsay and I went to watch our daughter Brennan. She's 14, play some basketball down in the Thornton area. There's an In and Out on 136. I wanted to go to In and Out. Brennan doesn't eat In and Out, but she eats, uh, where do we go? Canes. She, so Canes is right next door. So Lindsay goes into In and Out, and there's a big long line, of course, In and Out. I go to Canes, I go right up to the thing. I order her chicken and fries. We take it over. This is a, like, I'm telling you every detail. I have no idea why I'm telling you every detail. But I'm telling you every detail. We get over back to in and out It's a beautiful day. We're sitting outside. We're waiting and waiting and waiting on my double cheese and fries to come. And I'm very hungry, so I dad tax the fire out of Brennan's French fries, which I'm very known for. Dad tax. Any dad taxers out there? Yes. Especially the French fries. God paid for it. I can tax on it. Dad ate the last slice of pizza and called it a dad tax. It's a good thing. If you're a dad and you don't embrace the dad tax, I share that with you. Um, We named the series, Did Jesus Really Say That?, with an enterobang, because Jesus makes many statements throughout his ministry that can create a question for us and cause us to wonder. Uh, Eli, last week, mentioned this, that... Um, statements that need a, a second read or a third read or even a pause to, to stop and to study and to learn context so that it doesn't create confusion for us when we're reading through the Gospels. We have a tendency sometimes when we read scripture to uh, come to statements that can create, like, an aterobang type. Situation that can lend itself to us just avoiding it, or to digging in. And in this series, we're wanting to dig in. Uh, we're wanting to not let the familiarity of some of these statements uh, um, stop us from having wonder. And so we're pausing. We're digging in. We're asking the question: What do you notice? What do you wonder about? Um, Luke six is almost entirely red letter. If you are studying through Luke along the way, which I would encourage you to, to read those chapters uh, as we come to our time together, so next week we'll have Luke seven, so this week I would encourage you to be reading in Luke seven all week long. If you have, have you been reading in Luke six in preparation for this morning, I am certain that you probably had a thought like, I wonder which statement he's gonna pick because there's so many in there. Here is an example of a few that I underlined initially to go of this list. Which one am I gonna choose to dig into and notice and wonder about in Luke chapter six? Here's a few that I underlined. The son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. I ask you which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Verse 20 and 21, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Verse 27 and 28, but to you who are listening, I say, and I'm a husband and I've been married for 25 years and I know there's a difference between hearing and listening. Any other husbands aware of this? Is this free advice? The difference between hearing and listening. Jesus says, but to you who are listening, not just hearing, listening. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Verse 41, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Verse 47, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I Say, we could spend an entire sermon on each one of these, couldn't we? We could take an entire semester on just Luke 6. We don't have time to do that. I'm just gonna spend time on three. And so my encouragement to you is as you are reading through Luke chapter six, or if one of those is really standing out to you and I'm not gonna speak on it today, my encouragement to you would be to read it a second and a third time to study, to process in your small group, to ask the Lord to teach you in context what he's, what he's meaning in, gr- in grace and truth and along the way. So I'm gonna do three this morning. Uh, as David said a couple weeks ago, it's kind of three sermonettes. I'm gonna try to tie them all together. But it's a bit of a three for one, if you will. And I'm not gonna ask you to pay extra for the second and the third. So what you paid in at the door, you get three for one. So this is, this, is, this is a good day. No one laughed at that and it's okay. I'm just gonna keep on moving. Here are the three that we're going to look at this morning, kind of one at a time. So this is where we'll zoom in, verse 5, verse 20 and 21, and verse 47. I'm going to start with the first statement, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, and I'm going to invite you to read along with me. This is, this is the Word of God. This is life, abundant life for us. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. And some of the Pharisees asked, "Why are you doing what is excuse me, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath?" And Jesus answered them, "Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry, King David, king of Israel? He entered the house of God. And taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Verse six, on another Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled and the Pharisees, the same group of religious leaders, The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with a shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and he stood there. Then Jesus said, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Do you think that Jesus is feeling passion for grace and freedom in this moment? Do you, do, you, do you sense as you read this that he is coming against the Pharisees and their rules and their rigid and their judgment ways? He's coming against them. He, he calls this man up in front of everyone and he asks him this point blank question. And he looked around at them all and then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so and his hand was completely restored. Verse 11, but they were furious, and they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. I wanna start with some context from Eli's message last week in Luke chapter five. Jesus was engaging with the same group of religious leaders in Luke chapter Five, a group of people who really love religion. I mean, they really, really love religion. They love checking boxes. They love ruling over people's religious lives with tactics of fear and pressure and shame. And the way of Jesus is the way of mercy and grace and freedom. And so the ministry of Jesus is consistently in the gospels coming against the religion of the Pharisees. And at the end of chapter five, in this engagement, in this clash that he has with the Pharisees, he tells this parable about not mixing new wine in old wineskins. Uh, and the, the, the visual picture, if you weren't here last week, is a new wine needs to ferment and an old wineskin is rigid. And so when the new wine ferments, it cracks the old wineskins and the new wine runs out. And so he's giving him this word picture to speak about the old way, the old covenant And then the new way of Jesus, the new covenant, and that new wine of Jesus in the new covenant must be held in new wineskins, and the Pharisees are rigidly stuck in old wineskins. And then he makes this statement at the end of the parable that I wanna focus in. It was a statement, again, that that Eli spoke about last week. No one, after drinking the old wine, wants the new, for he says the old is better. It's a statement that Jesus is using to press into the rigid, judgmental Pharisees. Let me read that again. No one after drinking the old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better. The Pharisees want the old way. They want the old wine. They want the old wineskins. And Jesus is the new wine. And he's saying you must embrace the truth to hold new wine. You've got to be a new wineskin but they want the old way because it's working for them, because they have the power and the control and the authority in the day. And so what I notice in Luke 6, 1 through 11 is I notice that these two Sabbath day examples are really prime examples for us of people who say and demand that the old is better. Because you look at verse 39, you're like, what what does he mean? No one after drinking the old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better. And then Luke 6 gives us two really good examples of people who are doing exactly that. They will not have the new wine. They they will demand old wineskins and old wine. Readers of the Gospels quickly discover just how crucial the Sabbath was to the Jews in Jesus's day, because there are so many clashes between Jesus and the Pharisees about the Sabbath. Now, for you to know, like when we read these these passages, like Luke 6, 1 through 11, um, strictly speaking, the only commandments that Jesus broke on the Sabbath belonged to Jewish tradition, not divine law. He was breaking all of these extra traditions that the Pharisees were using to put a heavy yoke of law and control people's life, and he kept coming against that. And in their zeal to define exactly what a person could do and couldn't do on the Sabbath, Jewish leaders actually laid on people's backs a spiritual burden far heavier than any physical burden. And this religious burden is what Jesus literally calls evil in verse nine. This religious burden, all these traditions, all these extra things that these religious leaders were putting on the backs of people about the Sabbath, Jesus in verse nine literally calls it evil. There are other things that I notice. In verse one through 11, the Pharisees have elevated something God has given as a gift, Sabbath rest. They're taking something that God has given as a gift, Sabbath rest, a day of rest, and they have elevated it over God himself. They have taken a a, a good thing and they've made it a God thing. And I notice that Jesus uses a story of King David, the Jewish king from the old covenant, the old law and the old wineskin. He actually uses that story to rebuke their rigid rules and traditions and judgments. And then on another Sabbath day, he takes an opportunity to heal this man in the synagogue on the Sabbath with everybody looking. He's not doing it in secret. I notice that Jesus is in the gathering of the people coming against their evil, and he wants the man to stand up in front of everybody so everybody can see exactly what Jesus is going to do on the Sabbath. He's going to heal the man. And I notice that it's public. So, side note on the Sabbath. Is Jesus saying that taking a day of rest is bad or that rest is bad? No, I don't, I, I don't believe that's what's happening here at all. In fact, if we go very back to the beginning at the creation, Genesis chapter one, God's creating the heavens and the earth, six days. It's good, it's good, it's good. We get to day six, God creates mankind. And on day seven, God does what? He rests. So think about this. Day six, mankind is created. Their first full day in the creation, they are resting. That's day one. And we've talked about this before because it's the gift that God gives us that we work from a place of rest instead of striving and working for rest. God gave rest to God's people on day one, and out of that place of rest, we work so rest is part of the created order. It's a good thing. I take Mondays as a day of rest. It's my, as best I can, it's not perfect. I try to put my phone away. I try to put my computer away. I spend time on walks. I spend time with Lindsay. I I recreate. I go to the gym. I hang out with friends. It's a day of rest for me. It's helpful for me. So I recommend it. I think it's a good thing. But what Jesus is coming against here in the passage is a heart posture that, that the Pharisees are using rest, Sabbath, in a rigid, rule, old wineskin kind of a way. And they're putting a heavy yoke on God's people. And so Jesus comes against it because in the new wine, there, is, there was a change in how people needed to understand what Sabbath rest was going to mean in the new covenant. Familiar verse, probably heard this before. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I, I will give you rest. Keeping the Sabbath day doesn't give you rest. I, I give you, I give you rest. So hear this, the rest offered in the old covenant around Sabbath was now being offered fully in Christ in the new covenant. One of the commentators that I read this week said this, so not not my words, commentator's words, quote, Christ's first coming did not abolish rest. It ushered a deeper kind of rest than the Sabbath could ever offer. Here's an important theological point for us to to think about, to to hold as as people in the new covenant who need to receive new wine as a new wineskin. Throughout the New Testament, there is telling biblical evidence that in Christ and in the new covenant, the Sabbath found its fulfillment in Jesus. Hebrews 4.3, Says we who have believed enter, enter that rest. It doesn't say will enter it, it says enter it. So how do we how do we enter like true abiding rest? Like true rest, not by putting aside a day of our weekly labors in seven, but by believing. By believing in the message of the new wine that Jesus himself is our Sabbath, he's the Lord of Sabbath. Again, same commentator, quote, not my words, quote, faith in Jesus Christ brings the rest of the seventh day into every day. In Christ we are at rest, for it is finished. Here's what I wonder. In the story, I notice these things, and here's what I wonder. What is it about the new wine of Jesus' grace, mercy, and freedom that enrages religious people to say the old is better? Like, what was their response? In verse 11, we, we could say reaction. You know, there's a difference between responding and reacting, right? Like response and reaction. Like it seems like a, like a reaction to the Pharisees after Jesus healed that man in that synagogue on that Sabbath day. And I'm reading out of the NIV, and my translation says that the Pharisees were furious. But another way to translate that Greek word furious is enraged. They're in the synagogue. They're in the gathering. The Messiah is there. The full manifestation of of God, grace, mercy, freedom. Jesus heals a man there. He brings healing to this man, and it enrages them to the place of murder. And you're like, I wonder, like, That is is something something to wonder about. If you've been around here for a bit, you may have heard me or someone else here uh, preach on this before. Here's what I think the rage comes from. When Jesus rebukes their judgment and their rigid demand for old wineskins by healing that man on the Sabbath, I think the rage comes from a demand that they have for rules and power and control. A, 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 how dare you tell me that we don't have the authority here anymore and that, that, that we can't check these boxes and rule over. It's, it's just a demand to be in charge, rules, power, control. And here's the reality of grace. Grace isn't fair messy grace isn't fair grace is favor grace is unmerited favor it's not fair it's not checking boxes like new wineskin has to embrace the truth that to hold new wineskin is to embrace that favor isn't fair grace isn't fair And so if you're gonna be someone that holds new wine, if you're gonna be, if your life and your faith is gonna be new wineskin, you have to wrestle with this. You have to get on the other side of the old wineskin to embrace that grace is favor and it's not fair. Grace affronts the demand for rigid rules and power and control. And if we demand fair, if we demand fair, we will miss the new wine of Jesus and we will say the old is better for me. And I just you've heard me say this before. We don't, we don't want fair. We want Calvary Church. We want the cross of Calvary. We need, desperately need the cross of Calvary, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace. It ain't fair. Jesus is so strong in grace here, and he presses in on their demands for rigid rules and traditions by literally calling it evil. It takes humility to recognize our need for grace when the lens for a relationship with God comes through old wineskins. Read that again. It takes humility... And I would say brokenness. To recognize your need for grace and mercy when the lens for a relationship with God comes through old wineskins, checking boxes, evaluations, traditions, judgment. What I know from my own story and 20 years of pastoral ministry, religion doesn't lead to grace. Religion leads to legalism. And legalism does not set you free. Grace sets you free. And to be a new wineskin, we must embrace how in need we are of God's grace and mercy and our own humility And in our own brokenness. Which is the next statement. Blessed are you. Favored are you. Blessed are you when you are aware of your need to embrace your need, to receive from God his grace and mercy. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Or in Matthew's statement in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5, it says, blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. What I notice and what I wonder is that all this seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? It just seems so counterintuitive, Blessed are the poor and the hungry and those who mourn. Why? How? Because they embrace their need. They tell the truth about their their limitation and their humanity and their brokenness. And I am in desperate need of God to show up as a rescuer in my life. A Jesus statement in 1 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in, tell me, That seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Have you ever been around someone that is in grief and you recognize that they are in grief, but when they're around people, they're working really hard to be strong for people that are coming to comfort them in their grief. And then we might say to someone like, oh, they're being really strong. And I just go, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in. Tell me again, weakness. Weakness, humility, need. This is new wine teaching. This is new wine teaching. And if you are asking God in your life for breakthrough, for deliverance, for healing, for transformation, You've got to think about new wine coming into new wineskin, not old wineskin, because grace and law don't mix. When you mix grace and law, you don't get grace, you get law, tradition, rigid. This is new wine teaching. We can't mix the old with the new, or as Jesus said in Luke 5, the wine will run out. I personally know this to be true, my statement A legal way of being in relationship with God does not hold water when tragedy and pain and sorrow come into our lives. If you want to see the kingdom of God, like see it with supernatural eyes, if you want to see the breakthrough of the kingdom of God In your life, by the power of the Holy Spirit, embrace that you are poor in spirit in need of grace. If you want to be satisfied, embrace your hunger and your thirst for something more than what you can go get or what this world can offer you. Embrace your hunger and thirst for heaven to show up in your life in need of grace. If you want to experience heaven's true joy, not circumstantial happiness, but heaven's true joy. If you want to experience the joy of the Lord is my strength, if you want to experience that kind of breakthrough in your life, lean into your pain and sorrow. It's not easy. I'll tell you what's easier, to lean away from your pain and sorrow. What's easier is to not talk to people about it. What's easier is to try to fix it on your own. What's easier, is just to keep on keeping on. And that doesn't work for me. That's just more pain and sorrow. So it takes courage, it takes community, it takes humility, it takes acknowledging, it takes getting out of the grind, sitting still, asking people to show up in your life, getting help in need of grace. Embracing your need and humility is holding new wine teaching. This is new wine. This is new wine. Embracing your need and humility is new wineskins because new wine must go into new wineskins and new wineskins hold the truth and the way of Jesus. With faith and trust, as Jesus, as the Lord of your life. Jesus is Lord, amen? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I say? I think this statement is meant to get our attention. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? do not do what I say. Verse 46 to 49, let me read this, end of the chapter. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? First thing, who's Jesus talking to? Is he talking to Pharisees? Is he talking to disciples? Well, throughout Luke 6, he's talking to both, and they're all there, and he's speaking to everyone, and I think it's fair to say that Jesus is talking to anyone with an ear to hear and an ear to really listen. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Do not do what I say. I will show you what he is like or what the person is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. Word picture, word picture. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. And when a flood came, the torrent struck and that house Struck that house, but the house could not, but the torrent could not shake it because it was well built. But the one, word picture, who doesn't, who doesn't do what Jesus says, who doesn't follow in the way of Jesus, the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was Complete. <clears throat> what I notice is that Jesus is serious about his lordship and what it means, and so is the scripture. There's this visual in Luke, or not Luke, but in Revelation chapter 19. It's the moment in time of the second coming of Messiah. And it's when the father tells the son, it's time. And so Revelation 19 unpacks this. And there's a statement in Revelation 19 and describes Jesus in his second coming. He's riding on a white horse. His eyes are like fire, serious. And this is what it says about the Lord Jesus. On his robe and on his thigh, he has his, this name written, King of Kings, And Lord of Lords. When Jesus is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it means that all other rulers are conquered and abolished. It means that Jesus alone reigns supreme as king over the earth and over the creation. It means that there is no other power, no other king, no other Lord that can oppose him and win. I'm preaching now. I'm preaching now, by the way. What I wonder, what I wonder is Jesus, the Lord of your life, What I wonder, are you building your life on the foundation rock that is Jesus? What I wonder is, is this statement of Jesus getting your attention? It's a grace-filled, truth-filled statement, full of grace, full of truth, full of mercy to get our attention. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Is it getting your attention this morning? Here's the picture, again, of the hope-filled life, the faith-filled life, the endurance-filled life, the joy-filled life, the grace-filled life. Here's the picture. It's like a person who builds a house, and they dug down deep, and they laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood came, when when a flood came, not if a flood comes, When the flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not, could not shake it because it was well built. The truth of the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter three means this for us, not if a flood comes but when it comes. We are all in need of restoration and redemption and salvation and rescue in our lives, amen? That's part of the reality of the fall of mankind. And the truth of Jesus to the disciples in John chapter 15, on the Thursday night before Jesus would go to the cross of Calvary on Friday, in John 15, he tells the disciples this statement, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world will hate you. I'm not sure if the world's gonna hate you, but because I'm choosing you out of the world to call me Lord and to follow in my way, know this, the world's gonna hate you for it. So the brokenness of life brings the flood and the world brings the hate. Some of you already know this full well. And some of you in this room need to prepare for it. Worship team, you can come back. I'm gonna close with this. Some of you may be thinking like, well, how do I prepare for it, Swain? Like, you're not making me feel too good right now. It's a serious statement of Jesus that needs a second, third pause, context, reading to understand what Jesus is talking about. How do I prepare for the torrent? How do I prepare for the hatred of the world? And I write this down in my notes Wednesday morning and this is what comes to mind in, in just in the moment. I grew up in a small little farm town at a small little farm church and we sang a lot of hymns and the first thing that came to my mind was on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is you know it sinking sand how do you prepare for it build your life on the solid rock of Jesus Christ because all other ground is sinking sand When I was in seminary in 2007 and in 2008, I went to Biola University, Talbot School of Theology. It's outside of LA. And uh, my favorite theology professor, his name is Dr. Sose. And we were talking about like a theology that empowers us to walk in the way of Jesus, not in a legalistic way, but in a freedom way. And he started talking about an old hymn. And he even started singing the old hymn. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey obey and then he goes and he stops and he goes that's bad theology (laughs) and we're like what trust to separate trust and obey as two things is bad theology and he looked at us I'll never forget it and he goes trust is obey trust is obey To know Jesus is to experience his grace and his mercy and his power and love in our weakness, in our need. And to know Jesus in that space is to trust Jesus. And to trust Jesus is to put his words into practice. Because we trust Jesus and we trust Jesus because we know Jesus in the way of his grace and his mercy and his power that is made perfect in our weakness. Trust is obey.